All right, take your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. If you weren't here last week, ask your neighbor where Habakkuk is. Uh, but the rest of you should know now, Habakkuk chapter 2, we'll be reading the first four verses. And I hope you had a good New Year's last, year, last week, whenever it was. I said it starts to say last year. Uh, my wife told me to thank you, she, y'all's treatment. She loved being here. In fact, she said if she wasn't playing piano at Northwoods and she'd be here every Sunday. She enjoyed being here, and so we greatly appreciate it. She celebrated a birthday this week. Uh, it's not one she really wanted to celebrate, but she was glad to be able to celebrate. She was 70 on, uh, I think, Thursday of this week. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'm going to get her a really special birthday present. I'd already gotten it, but I thought, I'm going to take her to see TCU play Georgia. She's, she was in the TCU band. And when she was in the TCU band, TCU was known for a lot of things, but it was not football. And she was very much at all the games when they'd lose 50 and 60 and 70 to nothing. In fact, I one time when we lived in the Panhandle, bought tickets to see TCU play Texas Tech there in Lubbock. And she wore her band jacket. She had not had it out in years. She went, and by the middle of the first quarter, she had her band jacket off and was sitting on it so nobody would know she was from TCU. But I don't know if you tried to price what it would cost to go watch the game. I could get tickets. There weren't many left. But it's in the top of the dome, the highest seat in the dome, and those are $500 a piece. And if you go Southwest Airlines, which you can't count on right now, that's another 500 per person to get a spur-of-the-moment ticket. I figured it'd run me about $4,500 to go see it, and I thought, you know, it'd be a lot better to sit in our lazy boy chairs and watch the game Monday. So we're going to do that instead. Uh, we already have a 70th plan. We're going to Alaska in July, so she'll get to celebrate her 70th there. But anyway, she, she really loved being with you guys last week. And ever so often when she gets a break, she'll be coming with me. All right, let's get into the back of now and look at this. Last week, a bunch of you came up after us. We're talking about how relevant this book is. It is stunning how relevant it is. But we're not really where Habakkuk was. As much as we kind of identified last week that we are, things are really not good at all with Habakkuk. It's, you're talking about difficult living. For him, this is unbelievably difficult days. As we talked about last week, Babylon is rising quickly and very powerfully. They've already taken out the Assyrians, which put them in a level way above anything you and I could probably even begin to imagine, the power of the army. And we saw that description of Babylon in chapter 1. It gives a very uh, important description. It's a stunning army. The threats are real. The danger is off the charts. And now that danger is coming to Jerusalem. It's going to work its way around the what would be um, uh, Goliad, uh, not Goliad, I went blank. I've been on top of it. Well, there's a peak out there by Mount Hermon, and they're coming around that way, and they're going to work their way down the valley. He's living during the days when this threat is getting real. And what's about to happen is it's going to be a destructive war, and the people of God are going to be judged. But the reason they're being judged is because their rebelliousness, their immorality, their violence, their greed was all coming to head. And God had finally said, enough's enough. And after all this time frame, he's bringing judgment. And this is a struggle that Habakkuk's having. We're the people of God. This is the holy city. How can this be unfolding? Uh, God, I'm praying. Why are you not responding? What's going to happen? And, And you got all this unfolding. But also during this time frame, you have two other men preaching who have powerful impacts on all that's going on. One is already in exile. It's called Ezekiel. 
And Ezekiel has been preaching to the exiles about the adjustments and why they're where they are now in Babylon. And the rest of those who back in Jeremiah will be preaching to are still in Jerusalem. Habakkuk, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel, whenever he's preaching, brings home one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. I preached it many years ago. In fact, it opened up for an opportunity for me to write for the Express News of San Antonio because their editor happened to be visiting that Sunday. But Ezekiel told the people, you know why you fail? You know why you've started this collapse of the whole nation? He said in Ezekiel 16, 49, your guilt of your sister Sodom, and you're familiar, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know the whole story, you've studied that, you know what it's all about. Do you know why Sodom and Gomorrah fail? Of course, you're going to probably want to go, okay, because of sexual immorality or homosexuality, but that's not the sins that Ezekiel listed. Ezekiel said that Sodom and Gomorrah fell because of their arrogance, because they had an abundance of food, and because of their careless ease, their laziness. Life had gotten so good for for Sodom, they lived in such richness and abundance of everything that their culture collapsed. It was later expressed through their immorality, but the culture collapsed. One of the problems we face here in America is because of our abundant life that we've had. You and I have, in fact, we're a little caught off guard during COVID when we go to the store and you couldn't couldn't find toilet paper. You remember that? I don't know if that happened up here, but it did in San Antonio. In fact, I still had a connection or two. I told my financial secretary, buy enough toilet paper so we can take care of the entire church if we need to. And we did. We bought enough and I still have two classrooms totally filled with toilet paper after all this time. (laughs) That really happened. But they lived in abundance of time. And eventually it led to the collapse of the entire culture and society. And it's a danger you face. It's a danger Israel faced. Moses told them this in Deuteronomy 8. There will come a day, Israel, that after I've done everything I could do for you and I've brought you to where you are, and to, you're going to build houses, everything's going to be good, you're going to have an abundance, you're going to have everything you could ever dreamed of. And then Moses said, then you'll forget God. And then when you do, here's what happens. Moses prophesied all of this centuries before. And now it's unfolding, and Habakkuk and Ezekiel are telling them the same thing. But Ezekiel makes a point, and this shows the days in which Habakkuk was living. He says, now Sodom and Gomorrah fell because of arrogance, abundant food, carelessly, ease. They wouldn't help the poor or the needy. But you, Israel, you've been even more corrupt than Sodom was. So the culture has collapsed. The people have rejected God. Josiah, the great king, has now gone, and the collapse is unfolding. Jeremiah, though, is preaching another message that makes this a difficult day. Jeremiah's message is, leave. Go to Babylon. To those who trust in God, leave. Can you imagine how difficult that was if you're sitting here in, in, in Greenville and you've got Jeremiah preaching that Texas is going to be totally collapsed and you've got to go to Oklahoma. Now, some of you, that won't be a big deal, but for some of us, it might be. I mean, to pick up your home where you've been your entire life. Jan and I did that, and that's not an easy thing to do. We moved to Fort Worth a month, uh, a year ago when we came up here. But they have to do that. They have to leave their homeland. They have to leave where God is blessed. If they want to live, if they don't, they're going to be stuck, and they're going to face war, and it's going to be terrible. In fact, Jeremiah says, and you know the chapter well, chapter 29 of, of Jeremiah, which he tells the people, in exile, I want you to build your life in Babylon. I want you to build some homes. I want you to settle down. I want your kids to get married. I want them to have kids. I want you to have grandkids. I want all that to unfold. I want you to work for the welfare and the benefit of Babylon. 
Man, that's almost heresy at that point to the, to the Jews to have that word being said to them. And then Jeremiah does a famous verse that some of you may have hanging in your walls at the house right now that says this. For it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. So if you wanted a future and hope during this days, you had to move out of your house. You had to leave everything behind, leave your job, leave family who wouldn't listen at all to you, and move to a foreign country that is full of paganism and idolatry and everything else and build a whole new life. And then Jeremiah also said the temple would be destroyed. That's why there were so many attempts on Jeremiah's life. Even his own family and friends from Ananoth wanted him dead. See, this is an unbelievable difficult time unbelievably difficult time and it's in the midst of this moment and so in america as much as we think we've gone downhill we're not here yet we're not here at this point but this message is still relevant to every one of us and so when i read we're going to read the first four verses but you got to know something verse four is one of the most important verses in the old testament and it's found three times in the new testament at critical moments of how you and i are to live so stand with me we're going to continue to do it this way we stand in as i read god's word And you follow along in your Bible, starting in verse 1. I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the ramparts. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. Now the Lord answered and he said, Habakkuk, I want you to record the visions. I want you to describe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run time to leave time to go if they hear this they'll take off for the vision is yet for the appointed time it hastens towards the goal it will not fall it will not fail though it tarries wait for it for it will certainly come it will not delay behold as, of, as for the proud ones his soul's not right within him but the righteous will live by faith that last phrase This is one of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. Father, as we look at this today, teach us to understand how we are to live in the midst of the days in which we live. And though we may not be where Habakkuk and the people are in the time frame, the response for them or for us is exactly the same. So Father, help us as we look at this today. Give us wisdom and insight as only you can do. And then help us as we walk out of here this morning to walk out with a renewed sense that we're going to trust you all the way through our lives. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now God's command going back into chapter 1 from last week is seen as it unfolds in the opening chapter here. God's command to Habakkuk is to wait to see what God is doing. Now this is always God's command to us. There's never a time it's not his command. The psalmist raises this issue two or three times in Psalms 27, 14. He says, wait for the Lord. You be strong. You let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That's in 27, 14. It's at the end of that particular psalm. That psalm tells us something because the psalmist will tell us in 27 that he has many enemies. David did have many enemies being the king of Israel. He had many enemies and he even says, I feel like I'm surrounded by evil. That's what Habakkuk said last week about the evil which they were encompassing during his day. It felt like it was all the way around them and they could not escape for it. Well, it was in the midst of that moment that the psalmist is going to say a very famous verse that you're familiar with. And it says this, One thing I've asked from the Lord that I will seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of our Lord. So even in the midst of a very difficult and trying time, the psalmist, David, was wanting to know, wanting to get such a way that he's going to wait on God and he just wants to be able to see God in all of his glory. And that was his heart's desire. I will tell you, when you get the New Testament, it doesn't change. When Paul's writing the church at Philippi, he's having to explain to them how he needs them to live. Being a Christian in Philippi was not an easy thing. Do you remember that when Paul and Silas and others would have been there when they were preaching, uh, after what happened, they were arrested, they were brought into the jail, and in the, in the night, they were beaten to the point that they were hurting severely. You don't take these kind of beatings. These are not easy. These are unbelievably painful. When somebody's taking a rod and beating you with it, they're not just kind of hitting at you. It's like taking a baseball bat and beating you within an inch of your life. So Paul and Silas have been beaten severely in this town. And as they're being beaten severely within the town, you know what they were doing that night? I've always found that fascinating. What would you think you'd have been done if somebody just beat you with an inch of your life and you're now in, in the stocks and you got the chains on your arms and your legs and you're laying there in the middle of the night? What are you going to be doing? Most of us are going to be moaning and groaning because of the pain and the suffering and everything else and what's going on. They were singing. They were singing and praying. Because these men are not super saints. Don't ever get in your mind that these men of old are super saints. They're just me and you. They are no different than me and you. But what makes them stand out is because they have such a confidence in their God and what's going on. They take this stuff serious. They live it out at every single moment. Well, Paul, when he writes back later to this, he tells the people, our citizenship is in heaven for which we eagerly wait for when the Savior will come. They're eagerly waiting for the day when God fulfills His promise. That's what we're doing today. You and I live at this moment. We're waiting eagerly for the day when Christ comes in all of His glory. So whatever we encounter in life, that's what we do. We eagerly wait. Eagerly wait. Most of us impatiently wait. Complain and wait. We want it now. Well, sometimes you wait because there's a time frame that has to unfold. So in Old Testament and New Testament, this has been the theme. That's the theme we're finding here in Habakkuk. So the key, though, to waiting is you have to make a decision. The key is you have to put yourself in a position so that you'll be able to see and to understand. Now, what did God tell Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5? Look, behold, I want you to be amazed. I want you to be astonished. But he told him, oh, son, here's what I need from you. Stop for a moment, open your eyes, slow down, and look at what I'm doing. So what does he do in first verse? He's going to literally do that. I'm going to stand on my guard post. I'm going to station myself on the ramparts. Now, these are war terms because they're right at the verge of war. He's literally going out to the gates, maybe up on top of the wall and everything, and he's looking out over towards maybe the Babylonian army could even be coming, who knows, at this point. But he said, I'm going to station myself there. And what he's wanting to do is he's going to want to look and watch and see what God's unfolding. But you've got to want this, guys. It's one thing for a preacher to get up and move you and motivate you and all those kind of things, but it comes down to heart desire. I posted on Facebook yesterday, you, can, you can't teach your children to love the Bible. That's, that's an impossibility. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But you can have them so acquainted with it that God can use that to be able to teach them and develop within them the love of God. I can't make you have this decision that I'm going to do what God wants every single moment, but I do my best to try to motivate you that way. But you have to make a decision. And that's what uh, that, uh, Habakkuk is doing. Solomon says, if you'll cry for discernment, 
you'll get understanding. If you'll seek for wisdom and discernment as you would silver or gold, you're going to find it. You'll discern the fear of the Lord. You'll discern what righteousness and justice is. And you'll, you'll have wisdom enter your heart. But that's something you've got to want. And very few people really want wisdom because they don't look for it at all. You don't search for it. You don't make it a passion of what's going on. God's called us all to do that. You can't do that for me. I cannot do that for you. We can motivate each other a little bit, but it comes down, what are you going to do? So here Habakkuk is facing these unbelievable dangers, the danger of war, danger of destruction, families falling apart, things are going crazy, and he says this, I'm going to keep watch in verse 1. I'm going to see what God's going to speak to me. So Habakkuk is willing to do what God's commanded. He's willing to go, well, okay, before I panic, before I overreact, before I do something I shouldn't do, I'm going to stop, I'm going to get my bearings, I'm going to think this through, and I want to see what God's doing. I stated it a week or so ago, but it comes back to that old study that uh, Henry Blackaby had of, of experiencing God. Watching to see where God's at work and then joining in with him. That's literally what's going on here. And so when you get back to verse 5, it says, God said, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your day. Well, let me tell you this. You already know this. Waiting is not easy. Waiting's not easy. Never has been. My youngest son had an accident when he was five years old. It was an unbelievably difficult accident. Both my boys were gymnasts. One of them was at one time, he was here a couple weeks ago, my oldest son was fifth in the world in gymnastics. And he's tumbled with Nadia Comaneci and Kim Zemesco and Bart Connors. So we've been all of that, we've traveled, we've done all those kind of things. But one of the things that was awful fascinating is when you raise gymnasts in your house, they are flipping through the house all the time. They could do backflips 15 in a row, just right down the way. They power tumblers. And so when they're 5, 6, 10, 12, 14, they're, they're bouncing off the walls. It's crazy. Well, when my son Jonathan was five, he's in the, we were having a big banquet. My wife and I just walked from the parsonage across the parking lot over to the, others, to the church. And as we get over there, my daughter, who was about eight and my, or nine, and my son is five, they'd gone back in the house to get something. And then a few minutes later, we hear blood-curling screams, horrible screams. I went sprinting along the back hallway of that church from one end to the other end, and I met Jonathan coming towards me, and from his nose to his toes, he's covered in blood. I mean, literally drenched in it. I still, today, my hands get sticky when I even think about that from the blood that was all over us. He had done a flip off the bathroom sink. It clipped a chair and landed face first on the outside of the bathtub with his hands behind him. It crushed his face. Waiting for doctors to figure out what to do was tough. I don't know what to do. I have no idea how to handle all of this. I don't like to wait. I like to make things happen. Sometimes we have no choice about life, that we have to wait. But when we look back on that moment from years later, and he is fine, I still say occasionally he's a little brain damaged, but I think that's more from being a, a boy. But I look back on that now, and guys, I can tell you stunning stories of God's provisions, God watching over us, God taking care of us. Sometimes we have no choice but to wait. In reality, Habakkuk has no choice but to wait. 
But you got to make the decision. I'm going to watch. I'm going to think. I'm going to reflect. I want to see what God's doing. Because I want to get through this. And I need His help. And so that's what this is about. And He makes that. And see, what's happening is God's will is being unfolded right in front of every one of us. And right now in front of Habakkuk. So if you look at verse 3, it says Habakkuk, he's now waiting for the point in time. But this is now going to be, this is judgment time. This isn't going to be a good time. You know, we always want God's blessings, but sometimes there are difficult times that God brings. And this is one of them. And this judgment that will fall on Jerusalem is for their ungodliness. And so what he's waiting for is the appointed time of God's judgment. Because God has an appointed time in which Jerusalem will be judged. Acts, Paul told the church, excuse me, the people in Athens, I think God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. There is another appointed day that we wait for, and that's judgment. Just like Habakkuk is waiting for judgment, the judgment of Jerusalem, we wait for the judgment upon the world. And you and I may be living in that moment as it draws closer towards the end. And so there's a point of where we're waiting. And here's the facts that, Joe, you need to know about how God's appointed time works. And it's found in verse 2 and 3. There is an appointed time. I said this several weeks ago when I first got here. God has plans that are so precise. So He's a God of order, we're told. Everything happens according to schedule. Remember several weeks ago, if you were here, I asked how many generations, there were 10 from uh, Adam, to Ab- Adam to Noah, from Noah to a- Abraham, there was 10 from Abraham to David is 14, from David to deportation is 14, and from deportation to birth of Christ is 14. We had the 70 weeks of Jeremiah, or excuse me, of Daniel being unfolded, and it happens right at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. You've got uh, Anani- excuse me, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus moving Mary and Joseph at the exact moment to get them to Jerusalem and how profound that would be. Never get away from the point that God has timing in all of our lives. We may not ever understand it. We may not fully grasp it. But there is always the time. There are appointed times. And you're always hastening towards that goal. You're always hastening towards the goal. And it is not going to fail. It will happen just as God has promised. It may seem like it's hesitating. It may seem like a delay has happened. And I'm literally just reading the verse here to you. But I'm listing it out kind of in an order. But it's coming. And in reality, there is no delay. You know, when you, 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 I got my doctorate from Southwestern, it took me five years. And I had to come to the point where you have to take what's called an oral, which your whole life depends upon. You walk in there before the professors, they have your doctoral dissertation, they have studied it, and they can ask you any question they want to ask you, and you've got to be able to handle everything that happens in that room that day or your five years goes out the window and it was wasted. I don't know about you, but I was a nervous wreck. I'd call people, tell me how this works. Tell me what I'm about to, who had done it. Well, I can't really tell you because there's no way to explain because every one of us are different when we go in the room, what we're dealing with and everything else. But that day, I never thought I'd get there. It seemed like it was taking forever to get there. And then when it got there, I was scared because it got there. But I went through it, and when I look back on it, what seemed like forever to get there wasn't that long ago. In fact, those of you who are older than me will agree with me something that you've learned about life. Isn't it not amazing how fast it's gone? 
Our life is a hand's breath. You take your hand, run across. Psalmist says, take your hand, run across your face. You feel the breeze, and it's gone that quick. We're just here for a short time. But sometimes these waits seem forever, but they're not delayed. Time moves on, moves exactly according to God's schedule. And if you do that, and you wait upon Him working, you're going to see great things unfold within your life. Let me give case in point from the Old Testament. Noah was told there was going to be a flood, right? What did he do? He began building a boat. Built an amazing boat. How long did it take him? 100 years. It's a long wait. I mean, he was already four or 500 years of age when he started. I can't even imagine that. And I'm almost 70. I can't imagine building a boat for 100 years the way I feel sometimes when I get out of bed and stuff. 100 years, but he knew what God said would happen, and he did the work. How about Abraham? What was Abraham promised? In Hebrews 11, it says Abraham was promised to look for a city which has foundations, his architect and builder is God. Did he see that unfold within his life? No. That's a reference to the entire second coming of the Lord Jesus, but he waited upon that. He lived by faith, looking for that promise that one day would come. Moses was given a promise. And when he's missed of all that he's going on, battling with Egypt and all that's unfolding, the writer of the book of Hebrews says he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. I don't know if you've ever got to see an Egyptian uh, museum uh, set up. It's pretty amazing. The wealth of that nation during those time frames is beyond anything you and I could even begin to understand. Their building capabilities are stunning and how they built their buildings. If you're ever in the Middle East and see it, it stuns you when you see stuff that still centuries later is still standing. We just learned this week, I don't know if you saw in the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal and others, they have now figured out they had a way of mixing concrete that makes us look pathetic. Their concrete can last for centuries and ours will last 20, 30, 40 years and have to be replaced. These were very brilliant people. He's living during that time frame. And you know what he's looking for? Not the riches of Egypt, which are astounding. He was looking for the riches of Christ. And all he had was a simple promise that there was a Messiah coming one day. See, these men were willing to wait. They put themselves in a position that that was their conviction of life. And because that was their conviction of life, they lived their life for the Lord. They lived in a godly and righteous way. Did they make mistakes along the way? Yes. Moses would have made them. Abraham, we know, made some mistakes. Noah makes a tragic mistake after the flood that's going to cost his son. But these were good men who took a point. I'm going to trust God's appointed time, and I'm going to live my life in, way, in that way. So you've got to put yourself in position to see God at work. You've got to want it. You've got to seek it. And then you've got to wait for it to unfold. So that leads me now to the key point of the whole message. And that simply is this. I ask it in a question first. How do you learn to wait like these men did? Because that's what you and I are called to do. That's, you know, I, I said this last week. I used to think that when I was a kid, if you came down and shook the preacher's hand during an invitation and said, I want to trust Christ, and he baptized you, that was it. You just had to believe at that moment. You had your fire insurance policy, and you go on. But that's not Christianity. Paul, when he wrote the Church of Colossae, he's very clear about that. As you receive Christ, so walk in him. It is a day by day. That's just the start. That's just the beginning. And if you stay there, that's not a good place to be. The Christian life is filled with amazing things, watching God at work within our, our lives and our families. And so there's two ways you can respond to my question, and it's this. You can be arrogant and proud. Verse 4 says this at the start. The proud ones. 
Now remember, what was the downfall of Sodom and Israel both? Arrogance. Pride is a major thing. In fact, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs says when pride comes, nothing comes but dishonor after that. And the writer of Habakkuk, he says, this man's soul is not right within him. So what is pride? I can do it. I'm better than you. I've got this figured out. I don't need any help. I don't need any advice. I'm going to get through life. That's an oversimplification. Well, you know what? It doesn't work. And it never will work. In fact, it leads to this kind of thinking. You know the story in the New Testament in Luke 18? You've got a Pharisee. He comes to the temple to pray as he's always done. And he stands there. Looks around as he prays. And this magnificent, unbelievable building that he's standing in. God, I thank you. I'm not like all you guys. I'm not like this person. I'm not like that person. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not like, I'm better than everyone. You say, well, that's not me. Well, be careful. It's amazing how pride slips into all of our lives. And so it says here, the one who doesn't make it are the proud ones. So who is the one who makes it? And for your sidelight later, for your own study, if you go down, there are five woes at the end of this chapter. Those five woes are the manifestation of a proud heart, and they are stealing from others, especially the weak. It's evil that you gain for your family. It's, it's bloodshed or hatred or anger that dictates what you do. Sexual immorality and idolatry was it's nothing but greed. But I don't want to spend time there. That's where most people live. I want to spend time on the next one. And we bring this to conclusion today with this. The second one who God will bless is the righteous ones. And who are the righteous ones? They are the ones who live by faith there in verse 4. Now, let me use three New Testament things. See if I can make this a little bit in, more interesting. This is found, this verse is quoted in Romans chapter 1. If I'm in Romans 1, what do we know about Romans 1? Well, the opening chapter describes a deterioration of culture and society that is stunning. That is what Rome is all about. It literally talks about God giving people over. And, and doing that, allowing them to be involved in things that will destroy their lives. But God gets the point that he gives them up. The sin of Romans 1 is that people have stopped honoring God and giving thanks. That's really the great sins that leads to a collapse within life. We quit honoring God and we quit giving thanks. But in Romans 1, it has this statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul starts that in one thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Gentile. And in verse 17, he concludes verse 17 by saying, and the righteous will live by faith. Now what makes this interesting is, this is the answer to the Roman culture, which is filled with idolatry, greed, there is some violence there. You're familiar with Rome and all that was going on, the leaders they had, all of that kind of stuff. That's kind of the world in which we live in right now. And what's the answer to all of that? It's a detailed explanation in Romans, the entire book of Romans, and a detailed explanation of Romans 1, 16, and 17, all the way to chapter 11. And then in verse chapter 12, it's going to give us, here's how you live now, and gives a great detail of how we live now because of that. But the whole thing has to do, you come by this, I trust God. I'm not ashamed of who Jesus is. I'm not ashamed of, of living this out. This is who I am. God has gifted me. God has blessed me. And I'm willing to stand no matter what. 
Don't find a whole lot of people today in our culture who can literally stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, they'll do it in church. But do you do it at the job where it could cost you? You do it out in public. It's not easy to do. I've been there. I've got stuck in this. I didn't want to be in it, but I found myself in it. And you make a decision at moments like that. And you get to the point, you go, what? After all God's done for me, I'm going to stand with him. That's what Romans is about. And that's why it quotes this verse, going back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was in more difficult days than the Romans were. But whether you're in the horrible days of war about to hit, or you're in the days the culture is just collapsing like that, Romans 1, or excuse me, living by faith, the righteousness is the answer. Or I can go to Galatia. It's right in the center of Galatia, where he begins it in the beginning of Rome, of the Romans, and Galatia, he puts it in the middle, where he's going to say this, no one's justified by the law, that's very evident, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Sometimes this is the answer to what happens within churches when they get into battles over who we are and what we believe and theological discussions, because they're having this. And it's, it's been a tough time. There's no war here, there's no threats of any kind, just maybe respect of other people but they're battling this in a church setting in Galatia and it's had a kind of negative influence this battle do we follow the law do we follow Christ how did all this stuff work even Peter's been led astray during this moment Paul has called his hand on it even Barnabas the amazing man who would stand with anybody had to have his hand called on this but in the midst of all that Paul says this the answer in times when churches are struggling There's no amount of work that will make you right before God. What it comes down to is trust God. And then he makes this emphasis. For even Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's conversion is not Genesis 12. His conversion is Genesis 15, when he finally got the point that he saw that what God said he would do. So when you get the point, it's really the unfolding of Romans, the fourth chapter, when you and I have to get the point, if God said it, it's true. It's easy to do that in church. It's easy to do that in a quiet time. It's easy to do that in a small group and everybody agree with all that. But it's another thing to do it in the midst of difficulties of life and facing the stress and the pressures we go through. That we can literally stand there and go, you know what? The rest of you may go this way, but here where I stand. I am not ashamed. There's no other way this is going to work. There's no trying to be goody two-shoe and everything I do. I'm just going to trust God as I get through this. But let me bring in the third time it shows up in the New Testament. It's found in the book of Hebrews, and it's at the end. The Hebrews are facing a very difficult time. These are Jews who become Christians, and they're now being persecuted because they left Judaism, and they're following Christ. You and I have no clue what living like this is like. We've never been there. These are my friends in Cuba. This is where they live on a daily basis. But what's going on? Well, in Cuba, the people have suffered greatly in this letter to the Hebrews. It says they have great conflicts of suffering. This is in chapter 10, verses 32 and 30 through 34. Great conflicts of suffering. They've been made public spectacles. They've been made public spectacles by reproach and tribulation. Now, we do see a little of that nowadays. If you take a stand for righteousness in this country, you'll be made a, a public spectacle. They'll do it in the media. They'll destroy your name. They'll write articles about you. They will make you look like you're the sorriest human being ever faced. We see this every day happening around. This is going on full blast for the writers or the people of Hebrew. And they're having, well, we're not yet, but they're having their property seized, taken away from them, confiscated. And you know what? They joyfully accepted this. But they're wavering now. Life's gotten tough. Maybe you should have stayed in Judaism. Maybe this Christianity is not working. 
and they're wavering. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to say this. For yet in a little while, he who's coming will come. He's not delaying, but my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous ones shall live by faith. But if he shrinks back, I have no pleasure in him. Habakkuk is facing a deadly war that's going to destroy the city. Rome is dealing with a culture that's so anti-Christian it's not even funny. Galatia is dealing with a church that's struggling over theological issues. And Hebrew are people who are suffering and losing their property or maybe going to prison because of their faith. Kind of goes across the gamut of all the possibilities of life. And the answer is always exactly the same. Trust Jesus. Trust him. Two cases in point. James has been put to death, one of the disciples. Peter has been arrested by Herod. He saw how much the death of James pleased the religious Jewish leaders in Acts 12. And what does he do? He arrests Peter, puts him in a stockade with a lot of soldiers around him. And if we're going to more than likely, according to the implications in chapter 12 of Acts, is going to execute him the next morning. I've never been at that point. I've had my name muddied and been the job I've had as a pastor, but I've never been seriously persecuted. He's facing death. What did he do the night before his execution? He was asleep. I don't know about you, but how do you sleep the night before you're going to be executed? Knowing that within six, seven more hours when the sun comes up, it's over. He's sound asleep. We know that scripture tells us. And he's not just asleep. Most of us might fall asleep, but it'd be a restless sleep tossing and turning and waking up ever so often. When the angels came to remove him from the prison, they had to strike him in the side. It's like you do your teenagers when you can't get them out of bed. You know, dump some water on them, punch them or whatever it takes, wake them up so they'll roll out of the bed. Had to kick him to get up. So my question always been when I'm reading that passage, how can he do that? How do you sleep the night before your execution? Well, I think he knew something. I think he knew he wasn't going to die the next day because Jesus in John 20 had already told him how he was going to die. And he knew that what was going on right now didn't fit that. But one thing is, whether he did or not, you know what? He just trusted God. He literally just trusted God. Let me go to another one. Go back to the Old Testament. It's always one of my favorite ones. Enoch. Enoch, probably a good man, comes from the line. He's down about six generations when he is six or seven, and here he comes. Do you know who Enoch's son was? Methuselah. You know Methuselah. Lived 969 years. And talk about the secret of long living. He probably could give us a lot. But you know why I think Methuselah lived to be 969 years? Now, they were living long in those days, but he lived longer than anybody else. Because God had appointed a time. And it was 960. 70 years later that the flood happens. If you're not aware of it, Methuselah died just before the flood or the year of the flood. 
Do you know what Methuselah in the Hebrew means? When he dies, it will come. Something was the birth of Methuselah, and God revealed to Enoch something, and from then on, he's not the same. Because it said for the next 300 years, he walked with God. So he's given a specific time frame, and so it's so impacting what God promised to him that he's not the same again. And he walked with God. And God, for whatever reason, brought him on home after 300 years and gave him a, a way out that probably all of us would like on this earth to be able to just go straight up into heaven. That's how he went. Both these guys are really, Enoch is found where? Yeah, in Genesis 5, but he is found in Hebrews 11. And what do we know about the people in Hebrews 11? Men of faith, women of faith. Yeah, so it simply comes down, do you trust God? Do you trust what he did for you in Jesus? Do you trust that he, Christ now lives in you? Do you trust in that Christ in you is the hope of glory? Do you live out Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and who gave himself for me. We have promises in the New Testament. God says, I'll not leave you nor forsake you. You know, if you and I ever get that point, it frees us up to live in ways you and I can never imagine. Sleep better at night. We'll be safer to be around people because we're not living in fear of anything and everything that could possibly happen to us. God said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I came to give you peace, a peace which the world doesn't understand, but I've come to give you all of that. And it simply comes down, do you trust him? Now, a moment ago, I'm going to go back to hit you guys on something. Y'all sang this a moment ago. You sang, my faith and firm foundation is that you will never let me down. You sang that. That was your praise to God a moment ago. That his... That your faith and God's firm foundation, you will never be let down. And then you sang a little bit later. And I don't know if sometimes we think about our words when we're singing them, but you sing this, I surrender all. I am willing this day to plant myself on a firm foundation, that foundation being Jesus Christ, and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him for whatever may happen. Which leads me to close with this. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let's do it without wavering. For he who promises is faithful. You know, when I'm raising my kids, I had to learn how to be a little more careful with my words with them because of my job. So my kids, during the morning, we'd be in, everybody would be going to school and to work. And, and evening, can we go, we live in the Panhandle, can we go to Lubbock and go to a show and, and go to the mall? And, you know, we live in a town of 200 people, an hour from Lubbock, so there wasn't a whole lot to do out in the Spring Lake. And I said, yeah, we can do that. And so then, a little bit later, something changed at work. Somebody gets rushed to the hospital, pastor gets called, I've got to go to Plainview, and I'm not going to get home until 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And my kids, this happened several times. My kids go, you lied to us. You lied to us. Well, I didn't, so I had to be a little more careful how I phrased when we might do something. I had to put some, but you realize that when God says something, he can carry it out. 
I couldn't always carry it out. I didn't have that kind of power, wisdom, or authority to be able to do that. I had responsibilities and stuff. But yet God has the power and authority to do that. So know this. He knows where you're at. He knows your name. His son died for you. You are important to him. He is going to finish what he started in you. Now you trust him. The righteous live by faith. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. We thank you that we can go into books like Habakkuk and, and learn and see these truths in and, and maybe new ways, but old truths that you show in different ways to us. And we thank you for that. It's easy to talk about walking by faith, but it's not always an easy thing to do. We struggle with it at times. But I pray, Father, that you'll give us the grace and mercy we need to keep moving forward and to grow in, 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 your, in your grace and in your mercy. And we become stronger as we live our lives so we can give you glory and honor in all that we do and say. And so, Father, in the moments we have as we bring this service to conclusion, if there are any here today, Father, that do not know you, give them the courage to step forward and say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus, I need him. May they come down and talk to one of the men down front about what it is to follow Jesus. For most of us, we don't need a public response. But quietly where we're at, we need to reaffirm that, Father, we're going to trust you more. We're going to stand on a firm foundation. We'll be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. We're going to trust your word, your promises, and what you've done for us through Jesus. So, Father, do what you need to do among us now. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.